From somewhere deep in the cloud and the corners of the earth, this is the Killing It Podcast with a focus on helping you make sense and dollars of all things IT with your hosts, Dave Sobel, Ryan Morris, and Carl Polichuk. Welcome to episode 130 of the Killing It Killing podcast. I'm Carl, joined today by Dave and Ryan, and uh, I'm on the road. I'm in Providence, Rhode Island, and I'm pondering the question of the day. What's a sandwich? Oh, I have a clear definition. A, clear, a, a, a sandwich requires two slices of bread. Okay. Uh, is, is is that, and they, they must, it must be, you know, a sandwich requires, you can put anything you want in between the two, two pieces of bread. Uh, but it, the bread is the delivery mechanism that you put things in between that makes it a sandwich. A hot dog is not a sandwich. Oh, a hot dog. Right. A hot dog is not a sandwich because it's not two pieces of bread with things in between. A taco is a taco. It's its own thing. And by the way, I could even be specific and say that is one, generally one piece of <laughs> of breadish carbs. So a hamburger is a sandwich, right? Two pieces of bread. Okay. And if you had a hot dog, it's basically a hamburger bun in a different shape. One piece of bread. Well, but if you, <laughs> if you slice the end of it and made it two slice, two pieces, would it be a sandwich? Sandwich. Becomes a sandwich. <laughs> it's, See, I have a I have a I have a less declarative definition, a more functional one. If bread is a delivery mechanism as opposed to a side element, it's a sandwich. And then there are many categories of sandwiches. Uh, I, I think that if you go back into the olden times when uh, sandwiches were done, I don't think they actually used two pieces of bread. I think they just used bread to pick stuff up with and then deliver it to their face holes. Um, I think that that is the function of a sandwich. I am hardcore in the camp of a hot dog is indeed a sandwich because it is, you could eat it, you could eat that hot dog on its own, but it becomes a sandwich when you choose to use <laughs> bread to deliver it as a result. Okay. I, I, and again, I will go with you. I, I believe tacos are utterly of a different category because they are of a totally different cuisine. But let me let me push a little bit because by the way because everything is like this is is by the way Ethiopian food is delivered by that. using food like using a bread substance to grab the food and bring it so I which by the way is not a sandwich <laughs> no no and very much Indian food is actually consumed that way as well uh, I would absolutely say that that predates the invention of the sandwich function. They've been around for thousands of years. And then we came along a little bit later and said, you know, I'm not looking for what's delicious. I'm looking for what's functional. Now, there are some sandwiches that are delicious and there are some sandwiches that are just purely for the sake of not being hungry. But it's it's a functional purpose, not not a. Not not a uh, a shape of the bread. Well, purpose. how do you warm three guys up? You ask them a definition of something. Exactly. <laughs> so, luckily, that's the first of four topics that we're not going to solve today. <laughs> no. <laughs> and brought to you by our friends at Acronis. Threats to client data constantly evolve, so your strategies must evolve too. But knowing where to get good guidance isn't always easy. Well, nowhere will hear you where you hear more. Ah, let's do that here. 
Well, nowhere will you hear more helpful insights from leading cyber protection experts than the Acronis CyberFit Summit. I'm going this year, this year in person in Miami, and you should join me. Experts like Eric Sipson, Larry Walsh, and Acronis's Amy Luby will show you how to boost profits, reduce risk, and improve your team's productivity, as well as the latest cybersecurity strategies, technologies, and processes. In person and online, learn more about the Acronis CyberFit Summit World Tour at Acronis.events. Excellent. Thank you very much, Dave. And everybody, let's jump into our first topic here today. Uh, so as a continuing saga, Apple has been in the news a lot in the last week, right? Uh, some new announcements on products, some interesting things about their operating systems. But the one we want to focus on is the continuing drama around their uh, paywall and whether or not they are allowed to control the paying systems within the App Store. So uh, I think you guys are probably aware of the recent court ruling that I found to be, I don't know, it spawned, I think, maybe the most curious sequence of headlines in tech media that I've seen in several months, because the architecture of the court's decision basically was Apple is not a monopoly, and Epic did violate their contract agreement, but going forward, Apple is not allowed to do the thing that they did that Epic was ob objecting to. Um, Apple is is restrained from ever doing that again. You must allow people to communicate directly with and build directly with customers of an app through the App Store, which I kind of thought was what Epic was after. And yet Epic is the one that is appealing the decision here. Um, I don't know, guys. Is this an actual logical legal progress decision or uh, is this just job security for lawyers? Well, it's always job security for lawyers. <laughs> well, it's always an opportunity for lawyers. There's a certain logic to the government saying, stop doing that. Like that action is a bad thing. And as opposed to, if you, you know, it's, it may be difficult for them to go after the whole antitrust, but there are certain obvious things that they're going to be able to say, don't do that. Don't do that activity that you're doing anymore. That is, we've, we've said that's wrong. And in particular, what, what's interesting to me is, is that the, the judge used Apple's own language and turned it around and said, you cannot prohibit this set of language that you drafted. <laughs> and, but, and, and that in particular is very interesting to me that it's taken what was an entirely Apple enforceable set of policies and the judges reached in and go, well, on this bit, we override you. And we now say you cannot do this. And if there is a uh, dispute over this section of the rules, it doesn't live within Apple's internal court. It now goes to a federal judge. And then you get another level where it's so intriguing that they throw the, I'll quote this, Apple is permanently restrained and enjoined from prohibiting developers from including in their apps and their metadata buttons, external links, or other calls to action. We are now literally defining a link or a button as the thing, the action. And we know as developers, like there is a difference between a link and a button because a link is something outside, but a button is something that you intend to do. But now the, the debate, if it comes up over a link versus button, is not Apple's to solve. It's the court's. 
it's the courts. And, you know, Epic is basically, I mean, they're saying, look, we don't like this decision because you're making us pay $3.5 million. <laughs> we wanted to keep that money. We thought it was a good thing. So there's that. I do say, uh, a friend of mine asked me, what makes this an Epic court case? And I'm like, that's the name of the company. <laughs> so he, he didn't quite catch all that. But the, for me, it's interesting because usually when a court says, you can't do this anymore, they then would not make them pay the back fees. They would not make them pay for something that they're going to say, look, you can't do that anymore. Uh, and so that's the, the weird twist for me is that the, the judge is saying, we're going to draw a line here and you have to pay for this in the past because you, you made a deal. You know, you and Apple had a deal and you broke it. Um, but going forward, they can't enforce that or, or make those kinds of deals anymore. And that seems a little odd to me because normally in our legal system, if you say, no, that's that can't be allowed. Well, that means it can't be allowed in the past either. Well, and the interesting spin for me is the Apple is not a monopoly conversation. Uh, I don't think that was the question, quite frankly. I think that they were being uh, they were being sued for the purpose of allowing or not allowing Epic to conduct its own separate transactions. But nobody was suggesting Apple itself. They were saying the App Store was anti-competitive. I think the judge went a step beyond here and said, uh, the App Store is not a monopoly, neither is Apple. And that has some rolling implications for much larger issues that are yet to be decided. I, I'm glad for that piece of it, because there's a huge difference between being monopoly and being anti-competitive. I mean, you know, if the courts or the, the even the, the Congress of the United States wants to go after these big tech companies because they're monopolies, I think that's a losing case on pretty much every front. They're not monopolies, maybe Google search, but pretty much nobody other than Google search is a monopoly, but they are all very anti-competitive. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think this gets to the level, right? A lesson you can draw from the telecommunications and cable video industry, that industry has understood for years, you know, like say I'm Verizon and I went out, dug holes in grounds, built metal structures, stood up antennas to build a network all across the country. And then because the spectrum I use is a public asset that I am given license to use, the government actually says, oh, and by the way, you also have to let Cricket Wireless sell a service on your proprietary network because while you may own the equipment, you do not own the spectrum. And so that's a way they introduce the competition. It feels like that's exactly what they're doing here in the Apple situation. You built the App Store. You invested. It's your R&D and your intellectual property. Congratulations. But it is now a public utility, almost, and you have to allow other people to sell on those wires. That is a very interesting maturing dynamic in this conversation. Kind of hard codes the App Store into our world, just like the telephones and the electric utilities. Yeah, I mean, I, as I said, I, we're, it's interesting that they're trying to figure out the framing of is it antitrust, is it anti-competitive, but I'm going to gonna keep harping on this is I am okay with the judges coming in and saying, don't do that, or don't do this, or don't do that. And I think that's a, that's a healthy way and what's supposed to happen is some level of enforcement where they get in an argument, two companies get in an argument, and the judge goes in and says, yep, don't do that anymore. Uh, that's healthy. That is some, is a potentially an argument that is, there is competition here, but the main point is, is 
it's in that anti-competitive realm. But we're out of time. Uh, I want to move us on to a debate over employee productivity. So we're now looking at the new the new world, right, or the new world order, whatever we want to call it, the new norm, all these stupid ideas for it. But more importantly, now that remote work has become more of a thing, right? We have, we now actually are starting to get some of the first research out in terms of what that that is. And in an actual published peer-reviewed study, Microsoft Research has released some data in terms of what they're seeing internally. And it's very interesting to see that Microsoft and their own research team has come out talking about some of the threats to collaboration and employee productivity. This is a fascinating read to look into. And one of the things that they're finding is, is that within a small team, there is great, potentially greater communication, but cross teams and cross organization becomes much more of a struggle. And so I keep harping on how the reason why I think this is a fascinating space is because wow, the consulting here is amazing <laughs> because there's so much in helping people use the tech. Guys, when you saw this research, what were what were your reactions to it? Well, my first reaction was I'm glad they did it on such a scale. If you're going to do research on 61,000 employees, you have real numbers. This is way better than saying, hey, we looked at the 14 people in our you know, Poughkeepsie office and here's what we found. Uh, 61,000 makes it pretty real data. The other thing that's interesting for me is Microsoft literally owns the tools to solve these problems. And, and so, you know, whether, whether you love Teams or not, Teams is their tool. They use it internally. They all use it. And uh, figuring out how to make that tool help them improve their communications is great. Just a side note, they also mentioned the research that um, most of people at Microsoft are feeling like they're getting more support and better communication from their bosses than they ever have before. It's the interdepartmental stuff that is causing the problems. See, and I think that's exactly where it comes down to it, Dave. Your point is the tool will not solve your problem. It is a question of how you use the tool. And that is a question not only of individual skill and behavior, but of organizational design process and culture. And I think it goes exactly to that level. Uh, it's a somewhat bitter pill for Microsoft to swallow that the research indicates specifically that employees are more likely, as they described it, to hide behind asynchronous communication rather than simply pick up the phone or jump on a Teams call to deal with an issue in real time. And that leads to longer back and forth and it's harder to resolve a question, get a single version of the truth. Okay, so as Carl said, um, the fact that Microsoft is not able to get Microsoft employees to default to using real-time communication, synchronous video and voice communication that they sell. There, what this says to me is it has absolutely nothing to do with the tools you have. It has everything to do with whether or not you are an organization that knows how to do hybrid work. And this is, I believe, one of the absolute critical takeaways from the last year and a half. Hybrid is a new reality. Hybrid is a good thing, but hybrid is different and difficult. 
it is just because everybody can be remote. We're all remote. We've always all been remote from each other, except for like once or twice a year in the olden days when we would get on a plane and go to the same hotel bar someplace, right? We've always been remote. and We can always be productive. The question is, do you know how to run an organization in a remote hybrid environment? And I would argue the vast majority of organizations do not know how to do that. And to your point, Dave, holy crap, that sounds like an entirely new industry of solution provider and consulting opportunities. And they're the ones that have to understand the second order effects. So what was interesting to me is buried within this is a very interesting stat about the work week is now 10% longer for Microsoft employees than it was before. That does not mean they are working 10% more. What that means is the span of time from beginning of when they do their first work activity to when they do their last work activity is now a 10% longer window of time. That may mean they are also during that time taking a walk or playing, you know, having a longer lunch right. or go, like other things may happen, but a shift to the way people live and exist is that this shift of the way they use their time. There are lots of subtle things that are happening based on this reconfiguration. And I think anybody that's spending time thinking about that, mastering the way to manage people, build workflows, build process, the people that master this hybrid version of it are going to do very well and be able to teach others and make lots of money teaching others. Well, and there's always, literally from day one, been an industry of people who build tools that you bolt onto Microsoft products to make them the last, you know, the last 10% good. Right? right. And so, you know, that's, I think what's going to be next is that you're going to say, okay, if you're, if you're Intel, you need to bolt on these tools. If you're a company of 50 people, you need to bolt on those tools. And each, each different size company has different needs in terms of communications. That's, it's actually where small business kind of excels because if you have five employees, you do Zoom calls, you know, two or three times a week, and you just are not ever out of communication. With a big team or a series of teams, it's a little harder to keep track of. See, but that's the thing, right? In a world where, again, if the dynamics that people are are pointing to in our current world, uh, hybrid and remote is a piece of reality. Uh, it's tougher to find employees not because there's fewer employees to be found, but because employees are searching using different criteria and employee engagement and satisfaction are at historic lows. That's what's leading to this phenomenon of the great resignation. If those three things define our future reality in business, my answer is those who figure out how to do hybrid well and use it to find and engage the best employees and keep them emotionally and culturally connected, they win, right? Like there was a book written a decade ago called, it's not the big that eat the small, it's the fast that will eat the slow. Um, I will tell you in the next world, it is the hybrid that will win in this conversation. Those who are location specific and, and rigid about structure and attendance are going to lose a lot of really dynamic and creative human talent. And the organizations who figure out how to do it well, 
they're going to dominate the world. And I was going to say, you can see the fact that uh, just taking people for granted and is playing out very differently at the lower end of the wage scale. You know, that's, by the way, I mean, I'm, I'm the first one to say there's not a labor shortage. There's a lot of shitty jobs that don't pay enough. And people are saying no. Like, if you want an employee and pay more for them, you will get it. If it now, it may damage your go-to-market business strategy and profitability, but that's the business owner's problem, not labor's problem. And so for me, that's the other version of this, that when you, when you look at what we're seeing in, in kind of, you know, white-collar, middle, uh, you know, knowledge worker stuff is this reshuffling of management skills. The other version of this is playing out in, and you can see it more dramatically happening on the labor side at, at the, the lower end. And I would just point out, I don't think it's as clear cut, Ryan, as you make it sound, simply because I can totally see a very, very creative group saying, look, we're going to kill the competition because we are going to get together and be brainstorming a lot more than they are. We're going to be communicating a lot more clearly than they are. It's, it's much easier to do this face to face and Maybe it's once a month or maybe it's every day, but they will, their competitive advantage will be connectivity and not remote work. So there's always mm -hmm. a total, totally agree with that. Totally agree with that. But what you're describing, what you're describing there is the definition of a hybrid organization. <laughs> there you go. So hybrid is the future. Speaking of the future, <laughs> uh, the third topic today is about cybersecurity, vulnerability, and how it impacts not just your security and your finances, but potentially your business credit rating. Now, we have an article from TechCrunch about um, Moody's, uh, you know, beginning to look at how your security risk affects your ability to actually uh, survive financially. And uh, there's a startup called BitSight that assesses the likelihood that an organization will be breached. And this is like so such a hot topic right now in SMB IT. I just saw a post on Facebook yesterday where somebody said, hey, who are you using for insurance and liability? Because my insurance company is not going to insure managed service providers anymore. So this is a huge thing that, you know, you're going to have your your standard credit rating and then you're going to have your security credit rating what do you guys think about that yeah and this this show i actually just did it uh on thursday's episode from last week based on when this comes out uh the uh, thursday's episode i did a whole piece on some of the insurers who are who are pulling out of the space entirely and no longer offering uh tech tech eno specific technology eno insurance specifically for managed service providers are playing out of the market. So I'm going to say like, I actually will, will make the bold statement of, I don't think this is going to happen. And here's why I don't think this is going to happen. I don't think uh, a credit rating on your cybersecurity level will make a difference for investors who are just desperate to, to take gambles and put money in and see what their return is. I don't, I think this is just one of those bits where so many people are just writing off cybersecurity and losses and such that I just don't think this is going to be a thing. So you think a venture capitalist, you think a venture capitalist who says, look, one in 10 is going to succeed. They don't care that nine out of 10 are cybersecurity risks. 
Yeah, they already don't care that nine out of ten of their investments are going to fail. Like they, they're big betters. Like, so, but seriously, think about it, guys. In, in, you know, remember, investors are taking a bunch of gambles and they assume a bunch of losses with a few pops. This is not everybody is bad at this, and so there's there's a certain and, and by the way, they've we've already proven in the market that you can just kind of write a check and this goes away. And the check isn't necessarily that big, and it doesn't really slow down your growth. So there's an element of who cares. Unless there's an actual impact to this, I don't see it. See, I, I, I will take a completely different approach to it, because what you're describing is the, the lived reality of companies that are companies in the tech space that are large enough to attract external VC-based funding, right? I will argue that's less than 1% of the companies in the technology industry and the other 99.5% where they get their money from is the bank. And the one thing the bank doesn't want to do is see nine out of 10 account holders or loan company or loan customers default. A VC is going to look at this and say, plant 100 seeds if Two of them grow to a billion dollars. Your fund was a success. A bank, on the other hand, measuring credit risk as a functional reality is going to look at that and say, if I have 100 customers of my loans and two of them fail, I'm going to lose money this year. And my individual bonus as a loan officer is going to go away. I think that's where this is true. There are cybersecurity people who are still shouting from the treetops and saying, this is a problem. There are a lot of people who are saying, eh, screw it, I don't care, it's not that big of a deal. This is the first tangible foray of non-technical financial-centric people into this conversation. And if you read carefully, they're not suggesting a credit rating and a cybersecurity credit rating. What they're suggesting is cybersecurity is now one of the factors of your credit rating. And believe you me, if a small business goes to a bank and says, I would like a loan to fund my working capital, I want a rolling credit facility. And the bank says, screw you, you don't get that money because you've not taught your employees or protected your edge devices, et cetera, et cetera. That's going to radically change behavior for the 99 and a half percent. I agree with you, Ryan. I think this is primarily a small and mid-market issue. Larger, you know, the biggest companies basically self-insure with things like cybersecurity. So it is it is the smaller companies. But, I mean, that just means our core audience, our listeners, are going to be the hardest hit by something like this. And I think it will be a factor that if you, if you don't have something where you say, look, I follow NIST or, or whatever, I follow certain guidelines... Uh, you can't demonstrate that you are compliant. You are going to pay more or not have insurance available at all. So let me let me push further because because let me start by saying I wish I thought it was going to happen. Okay, I'm that this is my cynicism on the market coming in more than what I want to have happen. I wish this was a factor, but here's the scenario. This is the way I think this will actually play out. Small business owner will go to this bank and may have a slightly will have a lower credit rating and still put up their house or their their investment assets or whatever it is and still get a loan they're just more risky the risk doesn't transfer to the bank the bank doesn't deny the, they're in the business of making money on loans right they and 
I don't necessarily think this will really impact the flow the way you guys are proposing because the bank needs to take enough gambles. Yeah, the credit rating may be lower, so it's maybe a worse interest rate. But so, it's also, so again, the pressure gets... It's a, it's a matter of timing in history. So today, interest rates are super low. So if you had to get a loan and, and instead of paying, you know, 2.9%, you're paying 5%, you're going to be okay. But five years from now, add a little inflation, you know, let the, the economy grow a bit. When interest rates are 7% and you your loan is now at 12% because of cybersecurity, I think that it will, in fact, be baked into the system by then. I also think okay. Moody's doesn't give you $250 million for nothing. Look, and I, I agreed, but I'm just I'm just sort of projecting like five years from now. That's a lot, so far from now that like that it, that in a way this is this is like okay maybe you know. But but again, I'm I'm looking at this sort of saying I don't think this changes the landscape. I really well, just see. Don't. I I think what what is changed about this approach is it is we are no longer having the conversation of you should take cybersecurity seriously because we've been trying that and people haven't been listening and and actually taking it seriously. We're just going to go where they already live. We're going to go to a small business operator and say, your credit rating is going to be damaged. And therefore, your interest rates and your insurability and therefore your actual cash money that you yield from this operation, that is going to be impacted. I don't have to teach a business owner to care about his P&L. I don't have to persuade him to care about his credit rating. They are already there. This is saying... Well, screw it. Let's not let's stop shouting from the treetops about whether or not cybersecurity matters. Let's just go punch them where it already hurts and say, would you like to pay an extra two, three, four percent on a loan? Would you like to pay an extra 10, 50, 100 percent on your monthly premiums for business insurance? Because that's the kind of stuff that we're seeing. People get very emotional about that stuff. And I think it'll have a very rapid impact. I'll, cl I'll close out by saying, look. I'm arguing what I think the reality will be, not what I want it to be. And, that, and thus, the, the, this, you know, this will be interesting. There's too many business owners that, that run their business on credit cards. They're paying 20% interest. Like, so, so I don't, you know, if you, Carl, your scenario of, oh, it's 12%. It's like, well, still way better than a credit card that some of these, <laughs> some of the entrepreneurs are running on. So again, I'm, I'm just looking at the practicality and saying, maybe we'll see it play out, right? Well, in 250 episodes, uh, uh, it'll be five years from now, and we'll, we'll check in again. We'll talk about it then. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's sandwich that conversation. All right. That will do it for episode 130 of the Killing It podcast. Why do I point if you guys ignore me? I, I, was, I was watching you. Thanks for tuning in to the Killing It podcast. Please share with your friends and tell everyone to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and all the podcast places. Join us next week and help us keep killing it in the technology business.